2023. And so the next Wednesday night we come together, it'll be a new year and the same God that has been God in 2023, we know will be God in 2024, so we'll have so many great things to say then as well. But what was a Christmas blessing? How did God uh, come through in your life and do something wonderful for you over the past few days? Who has something for me tonight? Yes, Dwina? Amen. Yes. That was a good time, right? All right. Yes, Danny? Amen. Praise the Lord. Who else? Christmas blessing. Amen. Indeed. Anybody else? Yes. I see a couple hands over here. Go ahead. Praise the Lord. So good to see her here Sunday. Yes, ma'am. That's right. Anybody else? Anyone else? Yes, Miss Barb. I see that hand. Yeah. Absolutely. Good to see you tonight. Anyone else? All right. Well, let's uh, take some time to pray together tonight. And I would just encourage you to bow your heads and Close your eyes and take a few moments to pray to the Lord from your heart, and we'll use our Acts model again. Uh, We begin with adoration, so take just a few moments tonight to praise God for who He is. C stands for confession tonight. If you have those things in your life that you just need to confess, admit to the Lord, take a moment and do that. Let's move into a moment of thanksgiving. We've heard so many good reports already tonight, but we each have those things that we just need to thank God for tonight.
Now let's take a moment to pray prayers of supplication. You may have a need in your own life that you want to take to the Lord. Perhaps you know of needs in others' lives that you want to ask God to provide for. Let's take a moment to do that. Lord, you have blessed us with this time in the middle of this last week of the year to come back together with uh, our family of faith. Thank you, Lord, for sweet fellowship that we've enjoyed. Lord, you're so good to us to let us do life with others. Others, Lord, who know you, who are journeying through life, and Father, we have so many things in common, and the most important thing we have in common is our relationship with Jesus, and thank you that we can come together and celebrate that with warm handshakes and hugs and smiles. God, you are good to us to give us a church family, and we thank you for it. Father, we thank you for the Christmas season that we have celebrated and we continue to celebrate as we move into thinking about wrapping up a year and starting a new one. And I pray, Father, that we would be faithful to you. We've been reminded again tonight of how faithful you are to us. You've been faithful in 23. You will be faithful in 24. And Father, I just pray that we too, in response, would be faithful to you. That we'd be faithful with our time, with our talents, with our treasures. That Father, we'd be faithful to be students of your word. And So Father, tonight we want to be reminded of how we have this perfect treasure of revelation, uh, the word of God, the Bible... And so, Lord, help us to, in these moments, learn. But, Father, more than that, help us to be in awe of how you, a holy God, revealed yourself to us. I pray that, Father, tonight we would use this material to uh, cause us to be closer to you and to be people who engage your word more and more as we continue through life. I pray and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was praying and thinking about where we go on Wednesday nights for the next few Wednesday nights, I began to be convinced that as people who say we love the Word of God and read and try to learn the Word of God, I became convinced that we need to be reminded of where it comes from. Uh, What is the Bible? How did we get the Bible? And what I hope you'll see over the next few weeks is that when you open up your Bible, however you access it, whether it's in a written form on pages like the Bible that many of you carry tonight, 
or whether it's in digital, di- digital form, I'll spit it out in a moment, uh, that you access on your phone or on your computer, I hope you will be in awe of how miraculous it really is that we have access to the living Word of God. And so to get us started tonight, I want to throw out a question and don't be afraid to answer and answer out loud. You know, I love to ask questions and get your thoughts because I think we learn together as we entertain questions. But just a basic question, how did we get the Bible? Now, that's a big question for this church because the name of this church is what? Bible Baptist Church, which reflects that you place great priority in the revealed and written Word of God. And so I want to give you that question, how did we get it? How did we get the Bible? What are your thoughts? What are some things you've studied and learned before or uh, maybe just thoughts that you've had in passing? But how did we get the Word of God? How did we get the Bible? God gave us the Bible. That's the best answer. But what we're going to do over the next few weeks is talk about how God did that, how God gave us the Bible. So tonight we're going to look at what I would call 10 key things, 10 key points about the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. Uh, some things that I believe will be a basis from which we can deepen our study over the next few weeks as we think about what God's Word really is. Now, I've talked to you somewhat briefly in the past about two forms of revelation. Now, when I use the term revelation, I'm not talking about the book of Revelation, which is the last book of our Bibles, but when I use the term revelation, I'm talking about a revealing, how God has revealed Himself. What is the most basic type of revelation? Well, it is general revelation or natural revelation. You know, when you read the book of Romans, Paul lays out this case for the sinfulness of humanity. And then he talks about the fact that we are without excuse because we see and know of God in so many ways. God reveals Himself in nature, doesn't He? Just in nature alone. When you think about the created order and how the universe is out there and you know, the planets align themselves and they move around one another and the sun burns and the moon glows and there's the ebb and flow of the ocean. All of those things reveal that there had to be, I think, a smart and intelligent designer or creator. It's kind of like the old illustration that perhaps you've heard before 
that talks about how order does not come from chaos. In other words, if you took a wristwatch, a moving wristwatch, and took it apart and pulled it apart into all of its even minute components and put it down in a bag, and you shook that bag for years and years and years, could you ever expect that watch to come back together? It would never happen because order does not come from chaos. So there is a designer, an intelligent designer. So in that alone, when you think about the world and you think about the cosmos and you think about the seasons, everything that we perceive out there, there is a God who designed, who created, and who maintains. And so we see that generally, that's God's general revelation that we see in nature, an intelligent designer. We also see traces of God's design in our own lives, just the basic ability to distinguish between good and evil, right and wrong. That's a way that God reveals Himself in the human heart. But we have specific revelation, which is what God specifically wants us to know about Him, and we get that from Scripture. That's what the Bible is. It's God's specific revelation about himself, about us, and his plan for us. So I want us to look at a couple of key verses that speaks to the first point I want to make to you tonight, and that is the Bible is inspired by God. So when we ask that question, where does the Bible come from? Someone has already said it comes from God. It comes from God's inspiration. Now, Paul writes to Timothy his last letter. So 2 Timothy would be the very last letter that the Apostle Paul would write before he died in Rome. And he tells Timothy toward the end of his letter that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I want you to look at two words in verse 16 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. The first word is the one I want you to focus on first, and that's the word all. So all means all, right? It means all of Scripture. And then the second word is the word inspiration. So the wholeness of Scripture, Old Testament Scripture and New Testament Scripture, is given by God's inspiration. What does the word inspiration mean? Any thoughts about the word inspiration? Uplifting? That's right. When we're inspired, we're uplifted. That's a good thought. Who said that? God breathed. Uh, That's exactly what the word is in the original language. 
I'm going to give you the Greek word because it makes sense if you'll listen to it. Theonustos. Theo uh, meaning God. You know, the word theology is the study of who? The study of God. Right? So you hear in that root word, theo, God. The Greek word for God is theos. So theo, neustos. Are you familiar with any English word that might be based on the Greek word neustos? What about pneumatic? If you were to have a pneumatic tool, what's the power behind that tool? Air, exactly. Uh, from the world uh, of medicine, what is pneumonia? It's a disease of what? Uh, of the lungs, how you take in air. So, uh, neo means air, means spirit. So, the Bible is given by Theonustos, so the breath of God. So absolutely, some translations you'll read will actually literally translate it that way, that the Bible is given by the breath of God, or it's God-breathed. And notice that Paul talks about because it's God's breath, it's God's inspiration, it's first of all profitable for doctrine. Doctrine is what? It's that which we hold to, that which we believe. So our basic beliefs about God, mankind, sin, salvation, our basic beliefs come from the inspiration of God. It is profitable not only for doctrine, but for reproof. If you're going the wrong way and you need to be stopped in your tracks so that you turn around and start going the right way. That's the idea behind reproof. It stops you. Correction means that it turns you toward where you need to go. Instruction in righteousness, how you ought to live your life. And so the Bible, because it's God's inspired Word, the very breath of God gave it, we as people can be complete, we can be thoroughly equipped, for all the things that God wants us to do. I want us to look at two more verses from the writing of Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, Scripture says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now what does verse 20 there mean? No Scripture, no prophecy of Scripture is to be a private interpretation. That means that we ought to know the Word of God and we ought to interpret it together. That what God's Word means to me ought to be what God's Word means to you. You know, of course, we uh, have different churches, but when we come together on the basic doctrines of Scripture, there ought not be any interpretations that's held privately by one group that's not accessible to the other group. All prophecy of Scripture 
ought to be available for everyone. For prophecy, he writes in verse 21, never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So here you have two apostles, one the apostle Paul, saying that all Scripture is God-breathed, and then here you have the apostle Peter, who is saying that this prophecy we have. And the idea behind the word prophecy is not prophetic in the way that, that sometimes we use the word thinking about last things or things that are to come, but it's more the revelation, what God has revealed. You see, a prophet foretells and also foretells. The foretelling is about the things that haven't yet happened, but the foretelling, the prophecy that he's talking about here, the foretelling of the things of God, they didn't come by the will of man, but holy men spoke them as who moved them? The Holy Spirit. So again, Paul writes that Scripture is God-breathed, and then Peter emphasizes the same thing, and he's saying this prophecy, this foretelling of God's thoughts and God's expectations and God's plans, they came to us by holy men as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible, I want you to know, first of all, is the inspired Word of God. God inspired it. God breathed it. Men didn't just sit down and write letters and write accounts and books, and then they come together and people put a stamp on them and say, this is the Word of God. No, it began with God Himself revealing Himself, His nature, His plans, His thoughts to the people of old. And so it's inspired by God. And then when we think about the Bible, the collection that we hold together, whether it's in the printed form or in digital form, it's a collection of books. How many books are in the Bible? Don't look at the screen. (laughs) 66 books. You knew that, right? You didn't have to look at the screen for that. 66 different books. I want you to to just bask in this for a moment. They they were written over a course of about 1,600 years. From the year 1500 B.C., you know, that's before the Common Era. We talk about B.C. and then A.D. So 1,500 years counting down to the year zero, or actually there wasn't a year zero, there was a 1 A.D. And so from 1500 B.C. to 100 A.D., written by more than 40 kings, prophets, leaders, and followers of the Lord Jesus. Now, what is so spectacular about what I'm showing you there on that slide? What's that? It, it agrees. That's what Carrie says down here in 
Charlie is reiterating her. It agrees. It holds together. You know, the Old Testament, what does the Old Testament do for us? It points us of our, to our need for Christ. That's exactly right. And then, you know, over the Christmas season, we've been talking a lot about the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament where the Bible is telling us over and over that there would be a Messiah, that a Christ would be born. And so, yeah, the Old Testament shows us our origin, our fall, and then our need for redemption. And so the, the completeness of the Old Testament is pointing us to our need of Christ. As I said a couple of Sundays ago in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted, and then in the New Testament, Jesus is presented. And so it's an amazing thing. Don't lose the miracle of this. And I don't want you to get lost in just the intellectual facts and, and miss the spiritual nature of this over all of those years and with all the different human authors, there really is, from Genesis to Revelation, one cohesive story. And that's miraculous. You know, you get all of those people uh, writing and, and having different perspectives that's the interesting thing about the biblical writers. Even though God, the Holy Spirit, inspired them, gave them a revelation of God's Word, let me ask you this. Did, did God use their situations in life and in history and even their personalities? Absolutely. You know, for instance, just look at the Gospels alone. There's, there's a difference between the way that Matthew writes and then Mark and Luke would write. And then there's a huge difference in the way John would write compared to the other three Gospels. And so it's not that the books and the writings are devoid of personalities or situations or history or any of those things. All of that is there, but there is one cohesive story. So the Bible is a collection of 66 books. You know this, the Old Testament consists of 39 books written from about 1500 to 400 BC. If you remember Sunday before last, I talked about the fact that there was an intertestamental time, that 400 period where there were no prophets, where it was like God was holding His finger on the pause button until the coming of the Lord Jesus. But from about 1500 to 400 B.C., 39 books written which compose what you and I call the Old Testament. By the way, if, if you ever make a Jewish friend, even a Messianic Jew... And a Messianic Jew, you know, is one who's a Jew by birth, probably raised up as a religious Jew, but comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't make the mistake of calling it the Old Testament. They want to hear it called the Hebrew Bible. So it's the Hebrew Bible to them. And then for us, 
you know, uh, that kind of come out of a different tradition. We think of it as the Old Testament because the New Covenant comes with the coming of Christ. And then you have the New Testament. But the Old Testament, 39 books, 1500 up to about 400 B.C. And we basically break them down as the Pentateuch, which is the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then the historical books from Joshua down to the book of Esther, the poetry slash wisdom, the book of Job, through the Song of Psalms or Song of Solomon, whatever you choose to call it, major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentation, and then Ezekiel and Daniel, and then the minor prophets from Hosea down to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. But 39 books of the Old Testament, which means there's how many books of the New Testament? That's right, 27. New Testament consists of about 27, not about, but 27 books written from 45 to about 100 A.D. Uh, The first one written was probably the book of James. You know, sometimes when you think about the Bible, you think about the chronology of the story. And so you might would assume that the Gospels came first, but actually the book of James was probably the first written of the books of the New Testament. And then would come these other books, the Gospels, with the inclusion of Acts. What's the difference between the Gospels and the book of Acts? The Gospels tell what? The story of Christ, and Acts tells what? The story of the development of the church. So you have Jesus through the Gospels, and then the Acts is basically a continuation of the Gospels, then you have Paul's epistles, and then the general epistles with the inclusion of the book of Revelation. So 27 books of the New Testament written from about A.D. 45 to 100. The Bible, 66 books, the Old Testament, the New Testament books, was written in different languages. And this too bears back to what I said a moment ago that in these facts and in these details don't lose the beauty and the magnificence and the miracle of it all. That it is one story although God used different people from different situations in life to write this story together And then it comes out as one cohesive story from the beginning to the end. So different languages were used, primarily three languages. The Old Testament was mainly written in Hebrew. Of course, Hebrew is the language of the Jewish people with some Aramaic. Does anybody know the difference between Aramaic and Hebrew? You probably heard that certain passages of the Old Testament were written in Aramaic, but most of it written in Hebrew. So what's the difference between Aramaic and Hebrew? Do you know? 
Here's the difference between Aramaic and Hebrew. They're basically the same language, but Aramaic is the more common expression. The everyday, regular people. That's what Amy would call it. My wife, you know, sometimes she'll look at me and say, Honey, just put that in regular people language. Well, regular people language in Israel, and not only in Israel, but also leading up into modern-day Lebanon and Syria and those areas, that, that language that the people spoke was primarily Aramaic. Now, you understand that because those of us in this room tonight know that there's a difference between English and hillbilly English, right? You do. Because, you know, in hillbilly English, we use some, some words that really aren't words. You've heard this before, uh, like the word widgey-digey. You know what that is, right? If I say widgey-digey, Maggie, you don't know what that is? I can put it in a sentence. Did you bring your pocket knife with you, did you? You know, so we, we have those common expressions that maybe, you know, from one culture to the next, they sort of get lost in translation. Aramaic uh, was somewhat like that. It was just a common language. A lot of the courts would use Aramaic so it could be understood by the common people that were out there. And then, then the Hebrew language was the prim, the proper, the pristine language of the religion of the Jews. And so the Old Testament, mainly written in Hebrew with some Aramaic. So in the books of Daniel and Ezra and a portion of even Jeremiah, you'll find some Aramaic language. And then when you get to the New Testament, from the Gospels all the way through the book of Revelation, each of those were originally written in Greek. Now, why were they originally written in Greek? It was the language of the Romans. And who was in control of the first century world? The Romans were. I talked about that a little bit week before last, that, uh, you know, God sent Jesus in the fullness of time. And a part of the fullness of time was that all of the sudden, with the Romans, there was this common language that not only was spoken in Europe, but also spoken in parts of Africa, and then certainly was spoken in Asia because the Roman Empire spread all over that part of the world. So if you were going to trade, you had to know Greek. If you were going to communicate, you had to know Greek. And so the Greek language in the time of Christ was that language that most people from all of that part of the world would know. It's an amazing thing when you think about it, that one language could be used and the Gospels could be written in that language. And then they could be sent out and be in very different places all over that empire, 
but all of those people could read it and understand it. And the same with the letters of Paul, the general epistles. Those would be written in the Greek language so that God's Word could spread out and people everywhere could hear it and understand it. You know, I hope that you're picking up again on the miracle of all of this, of how God could use all of these different people and use different languages, and then all of a sudden, with the coming of Christ, there's a common language, and the doctrine of the New Testament church could be expressed and sent out, and everybody would be able to hear it and hear the proclamation of the gospel and the proclamation of New Testament doctrine. So it was written, the New Testament that is, in the Greek language. And ultimately, we'll bear into point number four in a couple of weeks, but ultimately what happens is the books were sent out, the letters were spread out, God's people would receive it, and they would understand it to be God's Word. So just take that at face value. We'll dig into this a little more deeply in the next coming weeks, but I just want to present it to you. They would be sent out, and ultimately, the church would come together and understand what would be divinely inspired and what would not be divinely inspired. Because, listen, not only were there godly letters sent out, but there were also letters that contained false doctrine that were sent out. And so there was a process that I believe was ordained by God the Holy Spirit where people would come together and understand that which was of God and that which was not. We'll talk more about that later. But the books of the Bible, again, even though people would come together and understand which ones were and which ones weren't. The bottom line is that they were inspired by God. They were recognized by God's people as divine revelation, and they would be ultimately received as exclusive and authoritative in what we call a canon. Now, not a boom canon, But the canon of Scripture is that which measures up. A canon was a measuring rod. And that which measured up would be considered the Word of God. We'll come back to this and it'll get very interesting, I think, for you as we delve more deeply into that. But in these ten foundational key points, I wanted you to see that they were sent out, God's people were able to recognize the Word of God. When you think about the Bible in written form, you have to know that the Bible was collected and was copied before there was a printing press. So when you think about the Old Testament, the Jewish scribes developed some some very fascinating and in intricate ways of copying the Word of God. I'll show you some pictures when we get to this 
of some ancient, what they called scriptoriums. And that would be the room where all the scribes would be sitting there and there would be a lead scribe that would read out the Word of God and all the scribes would begin to write it down. And then they had a system of counting the pages, counting the number of lines and columns that were on the pages, counting the words, the letters, so that they knew what they had was an accurate copy of the Word of God. My friend, I'm just here to tell you tonight, we don't know how to value the fact that we can go to Walmart and pick up a printed copy of the Word of God. And further, we sure don't know how to value that on our phones we can download an app and on that app we have the written Word of God. Listen to me, we are a blessed people. But before this, you have to know that to have the Word of God meant that there were people that went through Uh, a lot of of work and effort, painstaking effort, for there to be copied scrolls and, and parchments of God's Word. And so before there was a printing press, the Old Testament and even the New Testament, that's how they were produced and spread amongst the people of God. The Bible was the first book, and you know this from probably studying history, it was the first complete book that was printed on the printing press with the, the movable metal type. In other words, you know that Gutenberg developed a system by where there would be letters that, that would be carved into metal, and he could move those and dip them in ink and ultimately press them onto paper or parchment. And so Johannes Gutenberg developed that in the 1400s in Germany. And then all of a sudden we got many, many more copies of the Word of God. So I just want you to, to remember when you think about printed media, when you think about books and magazines and all the different printed media that, that you have known all of your life, all of that literally got its start in an effort to produce the Word of God in print so that more people could have access to it. Now, a lot of people would never uh, tell you that. A lot of people would, would like to deny that. But honestly, that is why we have printed media that was developed in the 1400s all the way down to today. The Bible we have today, the seventh thing I want you to see tonight, is is true to its original writings, which is amazing. We'll talk more about this in just a moment, but but I want you to receive that and just understand that, that God in His providence and in His sovereignty, has protected His Word to the place that once again, you and I could could open up a leather-bound Bible or open up 
a digital copy on our phones. Let me stop there, and as uh, in a parenthesis, let me ask you this question. Is God's Word any less God's Word if it's in a leather-bound book or in digital media on a phone or even put up on a screen like behind me here? Is it any less God's Word? No, because the Word of God transcends the media, right? It transcends the form that you're reading it from. If it's on a a printed copy, it's the Word of God. If it's on your phone, the Bible's still the Word of God. Even back way before you could have a leather-bound printed copy on the scrolls and on the papyrus and all of that media that predates the, the binding of books, it was still the Word of God. Because God's Word exists regardless of how it's written down. But of the thousands of copies made by hand before A.D. 1500, over 5,600 Greek manuscripts exist to this day, either in part or in whole. So uh, there are ancient copies of the Word of God. The text of the Bible is better preserved than any other book that comes out of antiquities. You think about the ancient philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. What I'm trying to tell you tonight is there is no comparison. When you compare the copies of their early works to the early copies of Scripture, there's so many more copies of Scripture that it's that it really isn't even a comparison. Yet, it's an astounding thing that a lot of people will receive the works of the ancient philosophers and never doubt those works. But when it comes to the Word of God, there's often doubt, there's often persecution associated with it. There are just a lot of things. While the Bible has more copies from days of antiquity than any other type of book that you could think of. I want to say this. It just came to my mind. I don't know if you saw the report, but but do you realize, and this is just how blessed we are, to have the freedoms we have and have the access to the Word of God that we have, and so often we take it for granted. But, but over the Christmas weekend, uh, I, I've, I've, I lost the count, but there were many of our Christ, uh, Christian brothers and sisters in Africa that were killed by Muslim extremists as they came together just to worship the same Christ that we do here. And, and we take getting together in a safe place like this so for granted And we do our access to the Word of God. We take all of that so for granted. But God has done a miraculous thing in preserving His Word the way He has. One of the big things that I want you to know where we can trace the preservation of God's Word is the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's my key point number eight, that the Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed the reliability of the Old Testament. It's an amazing story. 
1947, there was this little group of Bedouin shepherd boys that were out playing in a rocky cave area just uh, beside the Dead Sea. And one of the boys took a stone and threw that stone into the opening of a cave. And they heard a shatter and they ran into that cave to figure out what had been broken in there. And those little shepherd boys were the first to find the first copies of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So all the way back in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were first found and then many, many more since then. And and here's the neat thing about the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were the oldest and still are. They're the oldest copies of portions of the Old Testament that have ever been discovered. So the copies that our Old Testament scriptures were translated from, the Dead Sea Scrolls by several hundred years predated all of those. And then when they're compared, guess what? There's no difference between what was found at the Dead Sea than what you and I have already in our Old Testament, which says what? God miraculously preserves His Word. And so even with the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the reliability of Scripture is proved every time something is discovered. Scroll of Isaiah matched the manuscripts that were copied a whole millennium later, a thousand years later. Other scrolls revealed many copy variants, but none affect anything we believe about God or about His work in the world. It all matched up. Number nine, the Bible has been translated now into many languages. As the Bible's been carried into other countries, it's translated into the common language of the people. And aren't we thankful for that? That, friend, we can read English copies of the Word of God. That's something we should be thankful for because did you know, and we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come, did you know that people gave their lives so that we could read the Bible in English? Men were burned at stakes because they dared to copy the Word of God from Latin at that time into English. But there are still a lot of people all over the world, about 1,800 people groups, that still do not have copies of the Bible in their language. That's why we support missions. You know, one of the great work of our missionaries is the work of translating Scripture, particularly the New Testament, into the languages that those people can read and and understand it. Can you imagine what life would be like without access to the Word of God? We can't imagine it because we've never lived that kind of life. You and I have always had access to the Word of God, but the point is God's Word transcends media. God's Word transcends languages. God's Word 
is ultimate when it comes to the revelation among mankind. Over the centuries, number 10, Scripture has been copied onto many different materials. Some of the Old Testament was copied onto stone, clay, leather, and papyrus. A lot of the ancient fragments and copies of Scripture were copied onto papyrus. The, the New Testament books, probably all together, were written on papyrus scrolls. And you see a picture there of the papyrus plant. And those plants are harvested. Some people still make it just as uh, an example of what it was like back in the first century. But they're cut into strips, moistened in water, pressed and woven into these sheets that can be made into a scroll or even a codex. I'll talk to you about a codex in just a moment. But this is a picture of P52. It's a papyrus that is one of the very oldest of the fragments of the New Testament. from John's Gospel, chapter 18. It was written sometime between 90 and 150 A.D., or it was copied at that point. But a codex is like a book. It's papyrus sheets that are folded together and placed together and then sewn. And sometimes they would even use like a leather or a, a, a wooden cover to, to preserve it together. Christians began using those sometime in the early 100s A.D. instead of the scrolls. Animal skins were used, fine quality skins for over a thousand years to make copies of the Bible between A.D. 300 and 1400. Parchment, which would be scraped and stretched skins from calves, from sheep, from goats. Vellum is a higher quality parchment, usually from calf skin, rubbed with pumice and treated with chalk. Vellum, two of the oldest vellum copies of the New Testament that are still around today is the Codex Vaticanus, which was copied in the early 300s, and the Codex Sinaiticus, which was copied again in the 300s A.D. Wycliffe Bibles, that's one of the oldest English copies of the Word of God, were copied by hand on vellum in the 13-1400s. And I just want you to look at this fact. Each copy took months to produce and cost six months' wages or more. And of course now we know the Bible is printed on the paper. It comes in all the digital forms that are out there in many translations and languages. I say everything I've said tonight to set the stage for more that we're going to talk about, and all of it proves over and over again how precious the Bible is to you and to me and how miraculous it is that God gave it. Men wrote it down inspired by the Holy Spirit, and God has seen its preservation and watched closely over its maintenance throughout the years. And so it's a precious gift. We're going to talk a lot more about it. It'll get more exciting tonight was just kind of laying the basics for it. But uh, we, will, we will take the next few weeks and finish up the thought about how we received the Bible.
Okay, it is Wednesday night. We do need to take a look at the prayer list. And if you have your copy of the prayer list, if you want to make any notes or comments on any name that's printed or anything that needs to be added, any person that needs to be added, we will take that.